Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller with Media Mavens Podcast, and I'm here with my co-host, Joe Pirates. Hey, Joe. Hello, 80 degrees here in Tucson. I understand you're going to be uh, seeing the slopes here soon. I know. I can't wait to get out. The yeah. higher up, closer to space I am, the better, right? Yeah, I guess so. Higher <laughs> elevation. I'm excited to um, get out of here. But I am super excited. Raphael Rutkin is on our show with us, calling in from Switzerland. And I know they have phenomenal snowboarding and skiing in Switzerland, Raphael. So I may be coming to visit you there, but welcome to Media Maven's podcast. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Joe. It's it's a pleasure. And actually, it's unseasonably warm in Switzerland. It's It's been in the 60s today, although a week ago, it was basically like uh, minus 20. So we're wow. quite grateful for that. <laughs> That's so big. Six degrees is like winter here in California. But let's, you know, so I love that you're on on our space series. You are a space investor, advisor. You're an author. You're the founder of E2MC Ventures. I mean, and you recently started your own space podcast. I mean, you've got a lot going on. I don't even know where to start between that and then the creative destruction lab of the space stream. I mean, take us through space. Take us around the world with what's going on with you these days. Yeah, so... So I try to pretend that there's actually some logic to the madness. And, and yes, many people think there's complete madness in terms of how many hours I spent on, this, on these various things. But but basically, look, a few years ago, I'm actually a financial markets guy, shamefully. You know, I'd love to I'd love to tell you I'm a you know rocket scientist. Um, maybe some point in time in the future, I've actually learned a lot about rockets in the meantime. Originally, I'm a financial markets guy, and hence the investing angle. Wait, is that what E2MC is? That a, is that a VC or a banking financial group for space? Funding? Yeah, so E2MC is basically a company I founded earlier this year. It's, it's a very young company, but it's basically a, vent, a venture fund that's investing in early stage space companies. So the fun story, we, we as always, you know, when you have when you're starting a company, you spend some time thinking about what you're going to call it, right? And eventually, we came up with E2MC. And actually, even though we typically just use the abbreviation E2MC, it actually the origin is it stands for Earth to Mars Capital, and sort of the idea is here to finance everything that's going to like fulfill this dream of you know bringing humanity to Mars, sort of similar dream that, that Elon has right, to make life multiplanetary. And of course, it's also sort of a play on the Einstein, the famous Einstein formula, although in, in the wrong order, just to make that clear before some, <laughs> physicists, some physicists call in and say, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> just a little backwards. So are you, are you guys funding, like, because we've had a few really good, I want to say startups, like Arxis and stuff on our podcast. Yep. Are sure, you I know them, yep. So the great guys, it's so impressive. Are you funding these startups when it comes to AI robotics or is it, are you up on SpaceX and Amazon level with Blue Star? Well, well, SpaceX and Blue Origin, I mean, they don't need sort of our, they, don't, they don't need our money, right? Because they have no. a lot of money already. So we're basically focusing on the early stage and specifically, you know, what's called the seed stage. So, I mean, it's, this is companies which are, you know, it's, it's sort of like the first real fundraising round. And it's typically like, it depends a little bit where you are in the world, but in the US, it's certainly at least a few million dollars. And then, you know, we, we would write like, you know, some part of that as, as a check to these companies. And we focus exclusively on space companies. And so the company needs to have some sort of legitimate link with space. You know, it, 
it's not good enough for us to say like, well, maybe our product, you could take it to space. Like, no, no, no. Like it actually has to be something that's related to space. But within space, we really would look at everything. You know, we'd look at rocket companies. We'd look at what's called Earth observation, right? Which is where satellites, sometimes also called remote sensing, where satellites observe the Earth for various purposes. We look at satellite communications. We look at uh, more exotic stuff like space tourism. We actually, our most recent announced investment is in a space tourism company. Mm-hmm. We look at stuff like space manufacturing. So you name it, there's, there's many exciting things going on in space now i feel like everybody wants it's like kind of like when vr ar and vr was big years ago everybody was the ar vr expert to try to get money it was, it's like the wild wild west again then it became bitcoin mm-hmm. and crypto now all mm-hmm. of a sudden it's all about the space so i've seen certain people be experts in vr ar years later the wind blows right so they're quickly chasing the next thing to say they're an expert <sighs> now they're in the space and i'm like you can't just be in space to be in yeah. space, you got to have some serious like quantum physics, some serious background of science and math to even enter this space, so to speak, to even say you're an expert in it. Yeah, so I, I think that's exactly right, Sarah. So there's a couple of things where I think space is a little bit different. One is what you're mentioning. I think the hurdle is a little bit higher, or it's actually a lot higher, right? It's like, how many times do we go around joking, like we're just saying somebody, hey, this isn't rocket science. Well, this is rocket science. You know? <laughs> <laughs> This is actually, you have to put in, and, and you know, as I said, I'm not originally a space engineer, but I can tell you I've put significantly more than 10,000 hours or so of, you know, reading and studying and, you know, reading books or research articles and so forth to, to, to learn about space. And you really need to put that in. The second thing is that the space community, at least, at least for now, and I really hope it's going to stay this way, it's a very closely knit, very idealist community. You know, the people in the space community, I mean, there's people who are starting to make serious money in space now, right? Because mm-hmm. obviously space, now space is starting to take off. But even those people, they're, the vast majority, I would classify them as idealists. It's like the money is secondary. It's a side effect. They have a dream of, you know, going to the moon, going to Mars, connecting the entire world or whatever it is. They have an idealist dream. And this is also something that makes space, you know, very different from some of the other sectors you mentioned, for example, like blockchain and cryptocurrency, which... Let's put it mildly, it tends to be a little bit more uh, materialist without any value judgment, but it's just a, just a fact. Like, are the companies that you guys are looking at, like a good company that would qualify, it's not just these idealists, it's these people who are just running after because they think there's big money. It's, I mean, I'm trying to pick on companies that I know are legit, like, you know, there's um, JPL, but they're big, like Arcasis, and I've, you know, some of these companies that are very big in robotics and AI, I mean, there's not a lot of them. I know there's a company out of Austin, Texas, hyper, hyper giant, who's actually doing a lot up there. But I haven't seen a few real serious companies where I would say, hey, yes, I know you have the background of science, math, space, you have the experience to be a CEO to drive into this area. And I just feel like, how are you distinguishing between the people who are just chasing dollars for ego and those who really have the qualifications to send equipment up there and be able to walk the walk and talk the talk you know that's, that's a very legitimate question and, and again it's 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 a very deep tech sector so yes you have to be able to make that distinction you're mentioning sarah so we have you know our technical advisory board uh, so basically whatever comes up in terms of uh, opportunity and, uh, and so one important thing to point out is that um there's generally speaking there isn't there's no such thing as a journalist space expert right there can be people who know 
about several areas of space. And maybe I know a little bit about like a few percent of every area of space now, but then as soon as you go a little bit deeper, you have to find a specific expert, right? So like, for example, you want to invest in a company that wants to make um, antennas for satellite communications. You better find the expert on antenna and satellite communications, which is going to be a completely different guy than the expert on rocket engines, which is going to be a completely different guy from some other subsector of space. You see what I'm saying? But the point is, what we're trying to do at E2MC is that no matter what opportunity we look at, we have at least one, and in most cases, several people we can go to who are experts in the specific field. Okay. So I know one of the things that, you know, when I was reading up with you, it was, you know, one of the, your initiatives that you're trying to lead is the economic growth of the space sector. But that, but are you looking for companies that are in alignment with what is it, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals? Is that, and is what what is that organization? And is that like a mandatory where you must be aligned with certain criteria to be able to qualify to move into that space, or is it something that's European? Or where is this coming from? On the um, yeah, SDG? that's literally coming from the UN, so from the United Nations, and it's the SDGs, Sustainable De- Development Goals. So this is things like eradicating uh, hunger, poverty, um, 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 achieving gender equality, and quite a few other things. And so, yes, that's one organization I'm a part of here, actually, that's originally out of Switzerland, which is called Space for Impact. And there we're trying to basically educate, uh, well, educate people about the fact that many of the activities in space actually are good for the sustainable development goals. So let me give some examples. So for example, if you have satellite communications like you know, the Starlink network that Elon is putting up right now, that's going to help you to connect people who are currently unconnected, right? Which then allows you to do other things like, like remote education of people who otherwise wouldn't receive good education. So that's you know direct application that's promoting sustainable development goals. It could be something where you use, again, what we call Earth observation or remote sensing. So satellites observing the Earth in a way which actually helps to um, achieve much uh, smarter farming, what's called smart farming or precision farming, right? Where you get higher crop yields and produce more food or you produce the same amount of food with, with fewer resources. Uh, funnily enough, I, I just actually had a session for my own podcast interviewing a person who's doing exactly that. But so that that would be another example. So there's quite a few ways, there's quite a few activities in space which have positive impact on Earth. And that's not broadly understood, I think. And that's something we're trying to promote. And we're also trying to help the companies who are the space companies, the space startups who are pursuing activities like that. One of your uh, big investments is into SpaceX. I think you gave them about $2 billion last year of what you guys are raising, which was amazing to me in the year of 2020 that you guys are raising, you know, into the billions of dollars for space ventures. But what really intrigues you about SpaceX? So this is just, it's just a clarification. So SpaceX last year had, a, had, I mean, they had a couple of rounds and one round in August, September was where they raised $2 billion, but this wasn't from us, right? It was from sort of investors in, ge- in general. Now, SpaceX is sort of what I sometimes call the platform company for the new space economy. And in, in, in many ways, what enables the new space, or what we call the new space economy, it's, it's substantially about cost decreases. I mean, the fact is space until very recently, it was just too expensive to do many things, right? To do most things, to be quite honest. <laughs> because, you know, up until very recently to, to lift, you know, one kilogram, so it's roughly two pounds up to what we call a lower Earth orbit, you know, it would cost you more than $10,000. Now with SpaceX, and substantially because they're, they're, they're having a reusable rocket system, right? They've cut costs so much that now that's, that's less than $3,000. 
And if their next generation vehicle works, which is the Starship, where we get those nice uh, images out of Texas all the time, right? Mm -hmm. It can drop by another magnitude. It can drop to a few hundred dollars. And so, wait, so, wait, so, you, so what they charge, so just pick on SpaceX, since we brought it up, Joe, to put a rocket ship or move these robotics and all the sellers equipment and rovers up there, the cost is literally per kilogram. Is that how they calculate it? It's almost more complex than this, right? As you can imagine, it is rocket science. I'm trying to simplify. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, sort of obviously, there's obviously also a consideration in terms of volumes and everything. But, but I mean, the shortcut way many people look at it is they look at okay, how much does it cost to put one kilogram up to a certain location? That's crazy. Is is this why you started your podcast? Because I know you know you're a partnership with ISU and Nano Avionics, which is outstanding. Those are great organizations to be aligned with. And you just started your podcast, right? Last year during COVID. Yeah, last last April. Yeah. Okay, why when you was this why you got into this? I mean, because the podcast, is that why you're focusing? And um, what is the um the connection with nano nano avionics and ISU. So yeah, just, just to actually take those questions in turn. Yeah, exactly. You better start. Okay, so, so we'll start from the back. So ISU is is uh, that's the abbreviation for something called the International Space University, and that's basically an educational institution which was founded in 1988 at MIT by three gentlemen, with the goal basically to will educate people about space. And it's been going ever since. It now has a permanent campus in Strasbourg in France, and it, it runs you know, a series of programs. There's a one-year master program. There's a, an annual sort of two and a half month program, which is a flagship program, which, which I attended. And then they also run sort of like three-day executive courses. Uh, so it's, it's basically space education. Um, Nanoavionics is a uh, European, well, then they have a location in the US now as well, but originally European small satellite manufacturer. So they Literally, what, what it says on the label, they manufacture small satellites, <laughs> and you know, very well-known company in, in in the space sector, and they're they're sponsors of. Uh, we're, we're very glad to have them as sponsors of the Space Business Podcast. Now, why did I start a Space Business Podcast? And look, it kind of fits in with what I generally call my outreach activities. So when I'm not focused, most of my time is focused on the investing activities. But the hours I'm not focusing on the investment activities, I focus on space outreach. Now, why am I doing that? Not because I want to stay up until like you know midnight as I'm doing right now, but it's it's basically because look, I think if we really want the space sector to grow to trillions of dollars, as you know people are now envisioning, and and more importantly, if we want you know to bring humanity to space and you know settle beyond Earth, whether it's on the moon and us and so forth. We'll need many more people in the sector. Like I always joke right now, this of a hardcore like of the space sector. It's sort of like jokingly, like about I would say like between one and two thousand people. It's the same people you meet at every space conference. And I love them, but they're not enough. You know, we cannot be a multi-trillion dollar sector and, and bring humanity beyond Earth if it stays one to two thousand people. We have to bring many more people in the sector. We need more entrepreneurs. We need more investors. We need more employees of space companies. We need politicians and citizens who are supportive of space exploration. And in order for that to happen, the principal thing you need is education, right? Because there's this mental barrier and prejudice that space, it's rocket science. And of course, I just said that it's rocket science, right? But you don't have to know every detail, right? You can have a basic understanding of what's going on. So you're an informed citizen. And, you know, even like working for a space company, you can work at a space company. You don't have to be the literal rocket engineer. They also need like people who focus on business and marketing and other things. You can be an investor who invests in space companies. So this is, this is why we need education. And I'm trying to do my part here to, to provide this education. 
So the, the Space Business Podcast is one example of that. And by the way, it's, it's, it's done in a completely non-technical way. So every time, for example, we use a technical term, we immediately explain it. I've also written an introductory book on, on the space economy. It's unfortunately only available in German because it just came out, but hopefully we will translate it. So again, it's, it's written for an audience that's non-technical. So anybody, there's no prerequisites, you can pick it up. I teach at a couple of universities and I actually, I also put out a course on Udemy. So again, so it's accessible to people outside of those universities, which are a bit more elite institutions. But again, there are no prerequisites for, for this course. And so, so people can learn and get educated about space and the, the, the big opportunities that, that we have here. It's just because we have, we've had such great people on and I feel like I need to get all you guys back on in one big space podcast because we had yeah. we had chris mick on and he he's an educator he's backed by jpl nasa some space thing at asu and he's all about the schools the education for them like their ambassador i mean we went from we have from the education to you know the robotics the ai and now we're talking about the whole investment side so we're really going around the sun on this full scale of every aspect of this and my question would be Raphael is for an investment side, because people do the investment in all the technology. We've all seen the startups, the cryptos, the VRs, and all of the digital mobile stuff. But is it harder to get money into the space commerce industry because it's such an unknown out there? Because there's not a lot of data. We're still exploring. We're still trying to figure out what's out there. So to put tons of money down on a company, because we know that you know investing in companies used to be, oh, great product, great product, like 10, 15 years ago. But then it was really shitty leadership and they didn't know how to run the company. They took the money. I mean, we've had client calls where nobody answered their phones on standard meetings because the VCs came in and fired the entire company the night before nobody told us. Because it's just, you can run the company to the ground, but when you find a really, really strong leader, like the Aqua Funding, money could buy more R&D, but it's hard to find really good leaders and strengthen leadership in the industry. So are you guys funding the leadership, which is, again, is not a lot of people, or is it just really what's new? Because this we're still dealing with an unknown mm-hmm. galaxy yeah. out there. So how do you fund that, knowing that at the end of the day, where's the ROI for an investor? You know, there's quite a few points here to unpack. So... <laughs> Okay, so where do I spaceship and shot him over? Where do I start? So um, we are early stage investors. At the early stage, what tends to be most important is the team, right? Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure we have the right people who know why they're starting a company. Because I mean, famously, Elon Musk has has recently, a few months ago, he compared to being an entrepreneur to to eating glass. Uh, how it's such a painful experience. And, and it's true. I've been an entrepreneur once. I mean, it's, it's not something you want to do for fun. I mean, it can be fun. You got me wrong, right? But it's going to be really tough times. So we want to understand, okay, why are you doing this? Why are you putting yourself through this? It's like, where did this idea come from? What is your motivation? What is your qualification? You might be doing this for the next five to 10 years. Like, are you aware of that? Are you up for that? And, are you quali- and then of course, because it's space, then are you qualified for this as well, right? So because it's a deep tech sector, um, you know, you need to have at least somebody on the team who knows what they're doing technically. I mean, uh, again, because of the stage we're investing early stage, sometimes the teams are not complete in the sense that there might be some expertise missing. At the current state of the space industry, it's actually typically the business side that's missing, which is unsurprising, right? It's kind of like the early internet. I'm old enough to remember this, right? But in the, in the, in the mid-90s in the early internet, the very first internet companies tended to be computer science guys, right? 
And then only later on did like, quote unquote, other people, normal people start internet. And it's the same state in the space industry right now. The typical space founder right now, they're basically like uh, aero, astro, mechanical engineers, um, you know, who've done a minor in space or something like that. So technical founder or co-founders, and then they still have to find business people. So that's answering one of your questions. We need to find the, um, uh, we focus very much on the team, but we do also check whether there, if there's a significant technology angle involved, and because it's space, that typically is a significant technology angle involved. We obviously check that whether that's whether that's credible, and then beyond that, you know, it tends to be sort of a typical criteria to be honest, which are also true for other industries for venture investing. Is like, is there a big market? Like, do you provide any like do you provide any value to end customers? Who are your customers? Like, why are they willing to pay something for this? Uh, how do you monetize? What's your revenue model? And, and and so on and so on. Now there is some challenges to space and getting money into space. So compared to, to other sectors, I mean, first, uh, which I've already mentioned two or three times now, it's it's a deep tech sector. And so, of course, that's sort of mentally scaring some people, right? Because it's not something where your average investor goes and they know what's going on, right? So it has a few effects. I mean, some people will just basically stay out, stay outside. Also, of course, the bigger the industry goes, the, the harder it is to ignore it. Um, many other people will basically try to piggyback on people they think know what they're doing, right? So, for example, people tend to like us, E2MC, on the cap table because it gives sort of a some sort of stamp of approval, right? Oh, these guys are space specialized investors. Presumably, they know what they're doing, right? <laughs> Which then gives comfort to other investors who are not specialized investors to come in. Um, other sort of, you know, um, I don't want to call it problems, but sort of like considerations that your average investor often has with, with spaces different from some other sectors is some of the business models can take a long time to get a revenue, right? So, for example, every time you have to put something into space, so, so, so prime example would be people who want to set up satellite constellations to do something. T take Elon now with Starlink, right? You know, now it's now it's in beta test and it's about to switch on for full commercial service, right? But there was a long period leading up to that, right? And that's typical for satellite constellations. There's going to be a long period where you're basically just investing and typically investing a lot of money and there's no revenue yet. So that's not, you know, some people don't find that attractive, obviously, right? It's like a lot of capital at risk and you have to wait years for, for the revenue. So some aspects where, where, where space is different. Now, I do think the first thing I mentioned where, you know, space is specialized, of course, self-servingly, I will say that's why you should have space specialized investment firms. So, you know, people who want to participate in this exciting sector, you know, they can invest indirectly giving money to people like us. And there's other, there's other firms, specialized firms, right? Very good guys. And then, you know, we can allocate the money sort of using our specialist knowledge. I compare space a lot to biotech, you know, your average person, like biotech is obviously a hugely important sector. It's going to be one of the more, most important sectors going forward as well. I'm absolutely convinced of that, but most people shouldn't invest directly into biotech because again, it's just so technical. Uh, so what you tend to have is you have you tend to have specialized biotech VC funds, and I do think the same thing makes sense for space to have specialized funds. Raphael, it seems like space was once relegated to governments and military only, and it seems like mm. once private investors started getting their, I, I would say, getting their nose in the door and seeing what's going on, it seems like they've kicked the door open for full use of space. And let let me ask you, it, is there a point where governments you know, who normally would rule the space be pushed back aside by these private companies and basically relegated to kind of a support role? So I think governments are going to continue to stay important. I mean, it depends a little bit on the country, right? 
But I think governments in general, especially like in the US, they're going to continue to play very important roles. I mean, space is it's very strategic, right? It's like uh, somebody, I forget who, like called it like the ultimate high ground sort of in a military sense, right? So it's f- for national security purposes for, you know, I mentioned remote sensing of observation satellites a couple of times already, right? I mean, the original, one of the original use cases back, going back to the 60s for that, of course, is is spy satellites, right? And that's that's going to continue. So I think governments are always going to play a big role here. We're very fortunate to be in a sector where you have that sort of underpinning or that additional support, you know, like now you have private investors like ourselves um, in, in the sector, but in parallel to us, uh, like let's take the US, I mean, there's there's so much money coming from entities and the fantastic work being done by entities like NASA and, and the various military entities like F, F-Works, the, the Air Force, uh, the Space Force now, right? Um, other entities of the DOD, the, uh, the NSA, DARPA. Um, and this is, this is all hugely helpful for the sector. And the other thing those government actors can do you know, I just—I uh, was just talking about the longer timeframes and and high expenses, like uh, long timeframes getting to revenue, right? So, governments sometimes are happy to take those risks where private investors don't take the risk, right? So, for example, any sort of lunar-related activities. For example, there's a bunch of companies right now who are whose business model is to provide what we call cislunar transport. It's basically going transporting stuff to the moon, right? And for most private investors, frankly, including ourselves, that's just a little bit—it's a little bit too early for us to put our money there, right? Because you just don't know what the ultimate business model is going to be, where the customers are going to come from. But NASA and other entities have been very supportive of that, and and that's a good thing, right? Because they enable this initial development, and then they, they help those companies to start and you know develop their their systems, and then hopefully, when people find the real commercial use cases, then people like us can come in and continue the journey of those companies. Do you think, like, is the government going to, do you think, keep a foothold on policy and law? Because I'm starting to see more people <laughs> say they're space lawyers. And I'm just curious, like, because we had this, you know, and we've been That's talking. a good question, really. But we've been talking, we talked yeah, about this, you know, remember, I think it was Dan Lopez yeah. a few weeks ago about the wild, wild west. Like, you know, you can't just say, hey, I'm taking that chunk of Mars and that planet. It's like not like a Bitcoin market exchange one planet for two planets and <laughs> airspace. I mean, we have our airspace down here, but I just think it's opening up, like you said, a lot more people get involved, but I'm starting to feel like it's getting a little bit like some of the people I'm seeing on Facebook and who are just all of a sudden space people talking and bragging and posting like crazy. I'm kind of questioning the credibility that they're just chasing down to try to find a foothold to make them feel like they're making money and they're leading but now they're space lawyers and like, who's really going to like oversee all that? That it's Sarah, it's such a good question. And again, I don't know where to start here really. So it's not like you get a speeding ticket or you loiter on the planet, but <laughs> yeah. I, so, okay. So, so in no particular order. So look, I think this is going to be one of these examples where frankly, as many times technology is moving faster than politics and law, right? And they're kind of scrambling. And then people tell you like, oh, but you know, we already have the frameworks of like, because there's existing um, space-related um, international treaties, like the most famous one being the Outer Space Treaty. But, but they were assigned at a completely different times, you know, the 60s and 70s, when people weren't envisioning the type of activities that we're now envisioning, right? So, so coming to your next point, sort of like, okay, so you, so you have that on paper, but what's going to be the reality? 
my best guess is it's going to be to some extent the Wild West and uh, the law of the stronger. But, you know, because people want to actually do business up there, I hope people are not going to fall in some sort of prisoner's dilemma where this is going to have a negative outcome. I think people are somehow going to arrange themselves. And I also think that the governments are going to step in and sort of, you know, regulate things and basically make sure that, you know, it's, it's sort of at least somewhat orderly up there, right? Because otherwise we could all have issues. I mean, it starts with things like, you know, uh, you have to make sure stuff doesn't collide up there, right? <laughs> and create a ton of space, space debris, which would like shut off, could shut off space access for everybody. So I do think that governments are going to step in, in in whatever form and sort of, um, and this is, it's going to fall, the role is going to fall, to be quite honest, to the, the governments which have the capacity of doing that. So Honestly, I, was going to, I think my best guess is going to be the US and, and maybe China to some extent. And I hope they're going to sort of arrange themselves how to coordinate that. And they're going to basically guarantee that commercial activity can take place in an orderly way that's beneficial to everybody. In the same way that I sometimes compare it to the, 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 the way that, you know, US Navy is patrolling the world's oceans. And basically, the biggest function for me in my mind for the US Navy is patrolling the world's oceans to make sure that free trade can happen in an orderly way. And I can see sort of the Space Force and maybe some other countries' equivalents fulfilling the same role in the near to medium term. You brought up something very interesting about too many things in, in space right now. And I, I took a look at an article that was on your website uh, regarding uh, Space Watch GL wants everybody to stop launching right now until we figure out how much space junk is up there. And it just comes down to, I think that could be a, a perfect opportunity for a company that knows how to get some of that space junk and bring it back to Earth or, or shoot it into a, a deeper orbit or shoot it into the sun, whatever. But I, is that something that you're seeing? Is there any company out there that's looking, saying, hey, there is a lot of space junk up there. We can take care of it. You bet there is. Uh, and so actually, just two hours from here, sort of almost down the road in Switzerland, there's a company called ClearSpace. And that's precisely their business model. So they're developing a, a robotic autonomous spacecraft, which uh, you can go on their website. It almost looks like a has like a big spider arms on on, on one side to basically grapple an, an object and then basically throw it back into uh, the atmosphere to you know, to but evaporate. How did, but how does that help? That's like saying down here on Earth, you're taking all the junk and crap from one landfill and you're going to move it to another to, to get to the point where there's only so much space. That oh, no, it just it just it just burns up. It burns up. Yeah. Like it's gone. Like it's vaporized. Oh, so they, they, they're just kind of push it out to where it does burn up versus keep it Well, they push it in, like in yeah. towards the earth. And then basically by the friction of the atmosphere, it, it, it just burns up. It just burns up. I mean, this works up to a certain size, but basically it burns up for the use. And then the pushing out option also exists. So this kind of depends on, you know, in which orbit the junk is. So if it's in a very high orbit, so let's, you know, we call it, for example, geostationary orbit, right, which is 36,000 kilometers above Earth, which is where, where traditionally most of the TV satellites are, then you would push it out to what's called a graveyard, graveyard orbit, yeah. which is literally what it says, right? It's like, it's like a graveyard for satellites. And it's like, then they're so far away and outside of any operational orbits that it wouldn't pose a threat anymore. I think but something people, like that happens, you know, let's say yes. if something does an accident does happen either with a private company or a government funded company. I think that's when, as you put, the U.S. and China are going to be the ones to kind of garner the support for policing space. 
Yeah. So what we have right now is, and God, this, this is such, you could have an entire show. You could have several shows just on this topic. Let's um, do it. <laughs> and uh, you should, you should invite um, uh, Muriba Ja from the University of Texas. He's like the expert on that. He's a fantastic guy. But so I, I agree with you, Joe. So it, it may take an accident to kind of kick people into action here. I mean, also don't get me wrong. Also, I don't want to create too much of a panic because there's right. actually, this is going to sound stupid. There's a lot of space in space. <laughs> <laughs> but at some point in time, you know, it's it, look, we're having more and more near misses, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a numbers game, right? And, and then, of course, you're responsible the, for that, though, because that where well, these new space lawyer cowboys are trying to say, hey, if you're going to sue that person in space or that orbit, because there's some things that you, you just cannot control. I mean, it's not like we have people and stop signs and there's rules up there. You just can't control something's floating around and it just gets sucked into a Whatever. Yeah, but, but there's, a couple, there's a couple of points here. I mean, th there's there's one practical point that it may not be possible to actually identify uh, the party who's liable, say, for a collision. And what's an example of that? So, I mean, you know, if I have a satellite and sort of I make a, um, a stupid, you know, maneuver or something and I crash into your satellite, then I think it's relatively clear that, you know, I'm liable, but there might be something, you know, where you have a sort of a, a reaction where like, you know, there's a first collision and it, it creates a lot of like small fragments. And then there might be, there might be even a chain reaction that's called the Kessler syndrome of, of more collisions. And then you might just have some, some random fragment that, that actually destroys your satellite, but nobody's going to be able to identify the origin of the fragment, I think, realistically. So you run into these pra practical problems. The other thing, I mean, you have to be honest, like right now what's happening, you guys are probably familiar in e economics, you have this, this, this concept of the tragedy of the commons, right? You guys know, right? It's, it's sort yeah. of like an example on earth would be like overfishing, right? Oh, the ocean doesn't, the, 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 the ocean beyond a certain, like, you know, whatever, three miles on, whatever it is, it doesn't belong to everybody. Sort of like we can fish as much as we want. And like, of course, if everybody does that, then it's the outcome is worse for everyone, right? It's again, so that's the prison, it's the, not prison dilemma, that's the tragedy of the commons. And right now, that's the same case with the Earth, the Earth's orbits, right? It's sort of a shared resource that doesn't belong to anybody. That's not sort of like managed by anyone. So everybody just feels free to use it in to whatever extent they want. And yeah, it's a classic tragedy of the commons. And at some point in time, when we will have to apply one of the known solutions to the tragedy, tragedy of the commons uh, problems. I mean, there's enough research out there in economics. But yes, it might take an accident to, to kick people into action. But there's companies to answer your question, Joe. So there's ClearSpace here in Switzerland. There's one in Japan called uh, AstroScale. Um, and so those, those are the two which are probably furthest along. And then there's a, a few smaller ones as well who are working on, on basically deorbiting pieces of junk. I feel like there's going to be so many more people. They always say, what's that joke? There's more practicing attorneys and actual oh, yeah. certified attorneys. I just think it's going to be a whole new wave of people trying to get in to make money. But I mean, ask a question, Raphael. What do you, how do you feel about the legitimacy of the emergency asteroid defense project? Because I know that's based out of Denmark and their whole big thing is a trajectory of making sure, you know, we don't have a close call with asteroids and Earth. Because I guess there's more and more going on up there that they get concerned with. So that's an actual organization. Yeah. Itself. Yeah, so I think this is legit. So that, that I mean, there's there's several initiatives around the world. There's actually, I mean, NASA is looking at this as well, right? I mean, there's actually NASA is going to do. I, I should remember the name of the mission, but it's basically a, a redirect mission, right? Where we're going to impact a near Earth object and basically try to change the course, sort of like practice run for like if we, maybe we, in the future we'll have to do this for real if like there was a an asteroid threatening Earth. And I'm quite happy that these um, 
activities exist, you know, because it's, it's an existential risk. I mean, look, there have been catastrophic asteroid impacts on Earth throughout Earth's history. And, you know, we were playing sort of like cosmic Russian roulette here. It's going to happen again. And this is, of course, this is exactly what Elon would say, why we'd have to go to Mars. So that if something ends up smashing up Earth, like we wouldn't be, you know, we at least we have humanity in some other location as well. So I'm quite happy that, you know, one aspect of more attention on the space sector is that hopefully also people are going to learn more about um, that. Again, space is so important for us for so many reasons. Some of the positive impact reasons I mentioned above. But then there's also sort of like these like scary reasons uh, why we should kind of keep an eye on the skies. And uh, so uh, asteroid impacts is one. Another one would be uh, solar events, solar storms. You know, this ha- again, this, this hasn't happened in a while. So on a large scale, right? It happens all the time, but on a very large scale, it hasn't happened. So people are not aware of that. But, you know, there was a thing called um, the Carrington event, sort of mid 19th century, which was a huge solar storm. And it had such an intensity that you could see northern lights as far south uh, as the Caribbean. And if something like that happened today, it would basically knock out our electrical grid. It would knock out our comms. I mean, be, I mean can you imagine a society with like out electricity for even just a few days without oh, comms? Yeah. I mean, it'll just break down. I think, I mean, remember what happened in the aftermath of uh, Katrina in New Orleans. Imagine this like worldwide. And again, so people are not thinking enough about that. So I'm, I'm, sh- I'm also happy that, you know, Space getting more sort of like mindshare is also means some of these things are getting more mindshare. And I'm, I'm happy that initiatives exist, like the asteroid you know, redirection programs and things like that. I know we talked about, you know, a lot of these companies and just the wild, wild west and the ethics of legitimate companies, startups across the board. What's your um, thoughts on Blue Origin? I mean, you know, Amazon was, it's Amazon, Bezos was like a whole digital guy. You know, I know he stepped down as CEO recently. But I mean, do you think it's he really has what it takes to become another SpaceX or to compete with that? Or do you think it's I personally just gonna say it? I think a lot of it's also just ego and he has so much money, he doesn't know what to do with it. And it's an ego thing because I know you have teams of people around you, physics and all these people who know more than you. But I would also look at the leadership of Amazon of just you know, digital and all the great stuff they're doing. I don't know if I had to choose between SpaceX and Blue Origin. I think my loyalties and trust would be with SpaceX because they've been in, they're known to be in the space. You know, Elon created Tesla, which was a machine, a futuristic machine that is now on the street. So he had that engineering mind to know what was ahead. I feel like Blue Origins is more of an ego play. Am I wrong on that? Because I haven't really heard many people talk about it. And, and yeah, they're going up in May. Aren't they going up in May or they're going to try to, right? I'm going to defend Jeff Bezos here a little bit. So I think there are just different approaches, basically. So Jeff Bezos, I'm trying to remember, I think it was his high school, I think he was his high school valedictorian. And I think his valedictorian speech apparently was all about how humanity should, should go to space and settle in space. And he, at Princeton, he was, you know, he's a big fan of uh, Gerard O'Neill. Uh, Gerard O'Neill, of course, who was a Princeton professor, um, who wrote his book, The High Frontier, which is all arguing uh, basically for humanity to move to Earth orbit and certain other points in space, uh, but actually not planetary surfaces, interestingly, but basically built giant space stations, which we sometimes today call O'Neill stations, you know, which are like big cylinders, which produce artificial gravity. If you remember this movie a few years ago, this movie, movie Elysium, 
with a big space station, whatever. That's kind of like a O'Neill space station. So Jeff Bezos has been at this since before Amazon. I mean, this this was his high school valedictorian speech. So I have every reason to believe, and, and then I know some people around him as well. I have every reason to believe that his heart is in that. That's genuine. Please and he has been very, yeah. And I think he's taking a little bit of a different approach. You know, I think he he's taking... I forget now the blue origin has a motto which is almost which i think the motto is something like you know um, small steps or slow steps or slowly you know to space basically they're i think they're very methodological i think uh, they do everything in a very gold-plated way i have every reason to believe they're going to be able to achieve the things they're trying to achieve but you know they're doing it in like a slower and a different way and sometimes a less public way than spacex as well I mean, don't get me wrong you know i love spacex but i think both approaches may may be valid. But but yes, people very often focus on the fact that well, SpaceX has, you know, flown to space, you know, over a hundred times now and Blue Origin has just test flown suborbital rockets and, you know, hasn't hasn't flown to orbit once yet. That, that but ever- he was running Amazon to make the billions of money to fund the side project hobby, which is now becoming more realistic. I mean, I yeah, guess and now he's stepped down. So so now it's gonna be his I hope now it's gonna be his main thing, right? Because he stepped down from his CEO role at at Amazon. But he's so launching could, in May. Am I right? Wait, Joe, is that what we talked about? Isn't he? Yeah. It was, it, they're, they're looking at May, but that was very iffy. Okay. Is that for, I should notice, is that for a new Shepard rocket launch? So, I mean, they have the, yes. probably, right? They have the new Shepard, the suborbital uh, vehicle, which they've test flown God knows how many times now. I mean, that, that vehicle is, has really been tested a lot. But of course, they want to fly space tourists on that vehicle now and that that would be a nice thing to see if that happens soon i don't know if i would do that would you do that you would obviously rafael you'd go up wouldn't you yeah i i think i would you know it's it's one of these things you know I, i'm not 100 percent sure I, should, I would be on the first flight you know <laughs> i i pr- probably you know, I know the training these astronauts have to go through just to get through you know just to get through space to get through you know, the orbit and like all the G gravity, look what they go through the training physically, mentally. I mean, you, I cannot see saying a bunch of already stressed out, crazy executives up there without that proper training. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a slightly different flight, right? So, so the suborbital flight is obviously it's much shorter. The time in weightlessness is just a few minutes. Yeah, so, so those like guys will have around the moon for normal people compared to what these space guys are doing. They're really out there, you know, two years circling around doing research and stuff. Yeah, so I mean, in fairness, so the people who are going to orbit, I mean, so even the people who are not like NASA or ESA or Roscosmos astronauts, the people who are basically paying to fly, right, which uh, is going to happen or is at least supposed to happen later this year, right? We're going to have a, a private space mission, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, those guys get months of proper training right so they are well trained uh, of course it's not as much training as the professional astronauts right but they get they could they get a few months of training but they're just and passengers right they're just along for the ride yeah i look i mean they're obviously they're, they're going to be doing fewer things than the professional astronauts because they have relatively less training that's that's absolutely right having said that they did receive a lot of training and you know that's also why those people and that's the same for the people remember like over 10 years ago, there was already seven people who actually went up, right, to yeah. the International Space Station with the Russians on the Soyuz capsules. So those types of people who go to over to the ISS and, and those guys with the Russians, they also were, they received quite a bit of training. 
they also tend to get a bit, bit insulted if you call them space tourists, which I understand yeah. because they did go through proper training. So they, they like to be called uh, private space explorers, which I think is okay. probably a little bit more appropriate as well. Oh my God, that's so funny. I was so good having you on the show, Raphael. And I know it's getting late in Switzerland, but it was such a pleasure to have you on to talk about all of this. For people who want to get a hold of you, because you know, there's a lot of people trying to get into this industry. Where's a good place for them to talk to you about whether it's funding or some of these, your podcasts or projects working on? So I think, so if you phrase it like that, so if you want to keep it really broad and people could be approached me for funding or they want to, you know, take my course or listen to the podcast, probably the easiest is that there's actually, I keep a private website as well, which is, uh, it's just my name is www.rafaelrodkin, just one word, dot com. And then from there, actually, there's like a link to ETMC for the investing. There's a link to the podcast. There's a link to the course. There's a link to the book. That's, that's probably the easiest. The book's in German, but you're hoping... For now. Yeah, for now. <laughs> but hopefully they'll be on Amazon soon in other languages, right? Yeah, that's right. And I should give a shout out to my friend, uh, Robert Jack- Jacobson. I mean, who's, who's, I mean, there's similar books to mine, which are available in English. And one of them is by Ro- uh, Robert Jacobson, Spaces Open for Business. That's another good book. Nice. It was so good having you on here. So keep us posted of what's going on. We'll check back in with you. I think we need to have our actual, you have your space podcast, but I think we need to bring our whole space series on. There are such yeah. great conversations. I mean, it's always such a great learning experience and everything. So I do appreciate the time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Joe. And I agree. Let's, let's have a panel. Let's get a few of us together and just talk shop on space. Oh yeah. That would be great. I think we we need a visual with everybody's backgrounds and stuff, but I think we're going to have more to talk about, but for now, this is Sarah Miller with Meet and Mavis podcast. Thank you so much for another awesome afternoon, Joe Pirates. Uh, Happy to be here. Raphael, thank you so much. I look forward to talking again with you soon. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.